Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith with, with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. And for me, uh, that, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. And thus far, the reading of God's Word, and all God's people said. Paul has made it clear here in the closing verses of this epistle to the Ephesians that we all must contend with the wiles or the deceit of the devil. Brian Chappell writes about one of Luther's encounters with the devil, which were legendary. He says, visitors can see the wall where the, ink is, where the ink stained. A splattered shadow still appears where Martin Luther is reputed to have thrown his inkwell at the, de- at the devil because the reformers so vividly perceived the presence of Satan. The story is famous for its dramatic features, but important for us um, for, for its reflection of the spiritual warfare that we may face. Luther was not running from God or pursuing an evil path when the powerful temptations confronted him. The spiritual assault came when Luther was translating the New Testament into the common language of his people. After enduring great personal sacrifice and while engaging in a religious effort that would change the face of the Western world, Luther's faith was severely tested. The attack of the spiritual enemy was intense despite Luther's noble activity. At the time of great spiritual endeavor, Satan never seemed more real. Luther's experience teaches us that we are not immune to spiritual assault even when we have personally sacrificed and deeply immersed ourselves in a noble spiritual endeavor. In fact, these are the moments that may bring the most intense spiritual battles. Neither personal resolve nor church walls insulate us from Satan's threats. If you're a true child of God, then the the spiritual warfare is taking place all the time, whether you're aware of it or not. In fact, the devil would prefer that you were not aware of it. His, his success, he is successful if he can sideline you in the battle. 
is one tool to take you down on every front, large or small, is sin. His goal is to get you to act or react by doing what God forbids or by getting you to not do what God requires you to do. It's that simple. That's what he's after, to get you to disobey God. John Bunyan wrote in his book, The Holy War, I love this summary, nothing can hurt you except sin. Nothing can grieve you except sin. Nothing can defeat you except sin. Therefore, be on your guard. And it's primarily your sins, not other people's sins, that are your chief enemies. Not only your primary sins, but also your sinful responses to other people's sins is where you're most most likely to fall. Your misery, your anger, your depression, your bitterness, and all the rest is how the devil exploits you. It's how he neutralizes you. And while you're blaming anyone and everyone else, the reality is that it's you. You won't do the most fundamental and simple things that God has said to do in order to live an abundant, joyful, and victorious Christian life. So let me ask you, are you living an abundant, cheerful, victorious life? That's what God promised. That's what God called us to. You pretend to be helpless, victimized, and mistreated, but the truth is, for many, if not most, you haven't even begun to fight, that you, as the text says, may be able to stand in the evil day, having done all to stand. So can we just begin today by admitting this truth? James also gives us insight to this warfare with the devil. He also tells us that our only hope is to be right with God and to stop being double-minded. Therefore, submit to God, he says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and He will lift you up. Our problem is, my problem is, we are double-minded. When it comes, we come to church, we come to hear the Word, but then we don't go out and put it into practice. We nod, we say amen, we say, yeah, I believe that. But then we walk out the door and we don't think about it again. We don't self-consciously apply what God's Word says to our lives. I thought about this passage in Ezekiel where God says, uh, prophesies through Ezekiel to his people. Listen to this. As for you, son of man, talking to the prophet, to Ezekiel, the preacher, the children of your people are talking about you beside the walls and in the doors of the houses, and they speak to one another, everyone saying to his brother, Please come and hear 
uh, what the word is that comes from the Lord. They're inviting everybody to church. So they come to you as people do, and they sit before you as my people, and they hear your words, but they do not do them. For with their mouth they show much love, but with their hearts pursue their own gain. Indeed, you are to them as a very lovely song of one who has a pleasant voice and who can play well on an instrument. For they hear your words, but they do not do them. And when this comes to pass, surely it will come. Then they will know that a prophet has been among them. The call of Ephesians 6 is to us individually, to you and me, to put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. N.T. Wright noted that people, quote, have never thought that their small struggles might be a part of a larger campaign. They are like soldiers fighting in a fog, never seeing and actually not knowing about the others not far away in the same line of battle, let alone the other theaters where the war is continuing. But when you fail, when you fall, we all fail, and we all fall. And when you're victorious, we're all likewise affected. So you can continue in your daily defeat, or you can earnestly listen to what God says and says what He what what God says about what you need to do, and start doing it. If you're not, James one twenty two plain, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. Who's the father of deceit? The devil. He lies to you. He promises you things and He doesn't deliver. He tells you you're going to be happy. If you could just be successful in your business or get that raise or have a new friend or... And the list goes on and on. He has a... It's an endless list. It's like a child's Christmas list. Okay? He'll promise you anything. Now, He only gives you hell, but He'll promise you anything along the way. We're going to look at three pieces of armor that God has given to all Christians. In fact, Paul says that these three are above all. That's how this section starts. Above all. But these last, so, so the first three were attached firmly to the body, but these last three, he says, must be taken up, which indicates some immediate action and engagement. The alarm is sounded. There's a, a call to arms. And so you grab your shield, you grab your helmet, and you grab your sword, and you prepare for battle. You can tell who has taken them up and who hasn't by looking at the fruit in their lives. It is as simple as that. So first, above all, take, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. Scripture often refers to the Almighty as our shield. Genesis 15:1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram, I am your shield. Psalm 5:12. For you, O Lord, will bless the righteous, 
with favor, you will surround him as with a shield. Proverbs 35, every word of God is pure. He is a shield to those who put their trust, who put their faith in him. The shield that, Paul, that Paul's metaphor would have brought to mind for the first century audience was not a small disc, but a large body-length shield that a Roman soldier used to protect his entire body. It was made of wood, but it had a fireproof lining made out of metal. You will need this shield because all kinds of things are going to be hurled at you, especially the fiery darts. These were sharp, pointed objects that were weighted and then soaked in flammable material, then ignited and thrown. These were kind of primitive grenades. Grenades. In the spiritual warfare, these fiery darts come in many forms. I think most often they come in the form of thoughts and doubts. Paul has already warned us of the wiles or the deceit of the devil because he's crafty and he's cunning. There's no end to his ingenuity. And he also comes at us through desires and passions and lust and flaming and siding and arousing them to burn us up. Temptation of all sorts comes out of nowhere. He can make it look so good. Hebrews 3.13 warns about our being hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. John Bunyan wrote in Pilgrim's Progress about when Christian meets Apollyon. You remember that's the devil himself. And he disdains little Christian and he says, Here will I spill thy soul, he says to him. Then he throws a flaming dart at his breast. Quote, but Christian had a shield in his hand with which he caught it and so prevented the danger of that. If we have no shield, no shield of faith, we are sitting ducks. You'll have to stand behind what you believe, behind your shield of faith. Again, N.T. Wright describes it this way, belief in Jesus as the risen Lord and utter loyalty to this Jesus will protect you when the enemy hurls flaming arrows at you. The arrows may take the form of doubt or despair or adverse circumstances of sharp temptation that will burn you up if you let it catch light on you, a personal tragedy or indeed the kind of triumph that tempts you to arrogance and pride. Believing loyalty will quench them all. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is my Lord. I have bowed the knee to Him. That's first and foremost. Whatever else is going on, whatever else is coming at me, I believe in Him. Faith is the only shield that can defend us. In this instance, faith is the quick application of what we believe as an answer to everything the devil throws at us. For I know whom I believe, Paul says, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep what I've committed to him against that day. 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil 
walks around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith. There's the shield. Knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. In 1 John 5, 4, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. This isn't some abstract faith in faith, but rather faith in a faithful object, which is Christ himself. The, the Bible describes Abraham's faith this way, who contrary to hope, I mean, if, we might put it this way, contrary to reason, contrary to hope, in hope he believed so that he became the father of many nations, According to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body, already dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully convinced that what he had promised, that is what God had promised, he was also able to perform... And therefore, it was accounted to him for righteousness. When God has promised you something, are you fully convinced that what he has promised, he is also able to perform in the face against all odds? There's your shield of faith. Without it, all is lost. Second, and take the helmet of salvation. When we think of a helmet, we think of the head or the brain, the understanding and the thinking of the Christian. Of course, one of the fastest ways to kill someone would be to strike a blow to the head. And so if the devil can get in our heads, he can bring us down, he can discourage us, he can render us useless. This is a psychological warfare. You've seen minor examples of this in sports. Maybe you've experienced it yourself playing sports. When a psychological shift occurs in a person or a team and suddenly they start to lose ground, the other side gets in their head. I'm reading a book called The Boys in the Boat, which is about the 1936 Olympic rowing team from the University of Washington, who against all odds won the gold medal. One of the critical lessons these oarsmen learned was that their minds had to be at all times in their boat and never on what was going on around them, certainly in the next boat. If the other team got in their heads, they inevitably lost. The real Christian soldier is constantly engaged in battle, which often brings spiritual fatigue as it was in the first century, we too are surrounded by scoffers who do the devil's bidding. Peter wrote in 2 Peter 3, Scoffers will come in the last days, walking around according to their lust, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Where is this God of yours? It reminded me of the 
story of the Baals. You know, moreover, the devil loves to show us how unbelievers seem to be having all the fun and all the success. In fact, the Psalms are full of lamentation over the apparent prosperity of the wicked. <clears throat> By covering our brains with, uh, with the truth, the truth of our salvation, that helmet, remembering who we are and remembering what he's done for us, this will enable us to fight against all odds. And if you forget that, if you forget who you are and what he's done for you, Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5, 8, But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. And in Romans 3.11 he says, And do this, knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. Setting that before us, having that before our mind's eye. In other words, our salvation is set before us as the hope of glory. We already know how the story ends. We know who's won. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. The kingdoms of our Lord have become the kingdoms of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever and ever. This is the helmet that we put on our heads to protect us from the discouragements of the devil. This is what keeps us moving forward in the fight. The fact that we know that this redemption or salvation the fact that we know it means that our ultimate victory is certain. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called, and those he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Recall what our Lord has told us regarding this salvation in John 10, and I give them, that's you, you're his people, I give them eternal life. And they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and so no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. And again, Paul's confidence. For I am persuaded, I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We could go on and on with the promises of our salvation. Third, and the sword of the Spirit. Take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The sword is more than armor. It is both a defensive and an offensive weapon. We can not only repel the enemy with it, we can also attack him. James tells us to resist the devil and he will flee from us. This is fundamentally essential if you're going to have any victory in your life. You must take up the Word of God. May I ask you, have you actually done this most basic thing? 
I am convinced that few have done so. I am also convinced that this is the central reason why so many Christians live defeated lives. You'll try any remedy except this one. Is there any, just think about this, is there anyone who could honestly say to me, I have taken up the Word of God, I have hidden it in my heart, I have sharpened it in my mind, I have it ready, I have it at hand, but it has failed me. It did not prevail. I was anxious, and I pulled out my sword, and I prayed, as Philippians says, and I gave thanks to God, but God did not give me peace. I was tempted to lose my temper, but the words of Scripture were ingrained in my mind, and I remembered that a soft answer turns away wrath. But that sword was ineffective. I was tempted to lust, but all the steel of the Bible could not cut off that temptation. I tried, and it didn't work. The sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, was strapped to my side, but it was powerless to protect me from the enemy. I did what God said to do, and it was of no use. No. No. It is likely that your Bible was sitting safely in its scabbard, maybe that's what this leather cover is, safely on a shelf at your house. Or maybe forgotten under your chair from last Sunday. where it could do no harm, where it could do no good. When was the last time you sought out the Scriptures to discover what you needed to do to overcome one of the sins in your life, and then you earnestly took up those words and wielded them against that sin? I'm facing a problem, a conflict. A temptation. I must run for my sword. I must find out what God wants me to do. I keep it ready at hand. Is this not what Jesus Himself did when He was tempted by the devil in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights? He resisted the temptations by quoting Scripture. He sent the devil packing. So tell me, what else are you going to use that's going to be more effective than that? Don't tell me that you're struggling with this or that sin if you haven't, or more likely won't, make use of the main weapon that God has given you for victory. That's just not true. There's no struggle at all. That's called surrender. It's not a struggle if your sword's sitting at the house. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful 
is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. That pretty much covers it, doesn't it? Then say some good works, kind of equipped, partially equipped. We can't fight the devil in our own strength or power or with our own ideas. We have to fight him with that word that, produ- that is produced by the Spirit of God. This is a magic sword. Moreover, this is a sword that's available to every one of us, not just to ministers. You have a Bible, and if you're committed to its truth, then you have an answer for everything. Every philosophy, every scientific claim, and anything else that might come against you, 2 Corinthians 10 Three through six. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, not fleshly, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought captive into captivity to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. The only way, the only way to defeat the enemy is to take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Let me say, if you're not certain that this is the Word of God, if you don't completely and utterly rely upon it, if you don't believe it to be infallible and inerrant, then you have a cheap, worthless, plastic sword in your hand and you are already defeated. You must resolve today that the Word of God is the ultimate weapon, the ultimate authority for you. Settled. Paul writes, what advantage then has the Jew, or, the, or what advantage or profit is circumcision? And he, as he's writing this, he's writing to the covenant people of God, and I believe now that the New Testament's complete, we could go back and read this passage to say also, what advantage then has the Christian, what, what profit is baptism? Much in every way. Chiefly, remember at the beginning he says above all, chiefly because to them, that is to you, were committed the oracles of God. Is that an advantage? Much in every way, chiefly you've been given the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe... Will their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, though every man a liar. This is the truth. The truth. It's the truth by which every other truth claim is judged and will be judged. For God will bring each of us to account. 
Let's pray. Father, we confess that we are often oblivious to the spiritual battle that rages against us. And as a result, we are either neutralized, wounded, or utterly defeated. We are filled with anxiety, fear, doubt, and depression. Nothing close to a victorious, abundant life is evident in us, for we have failed to take up the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit. Forgive us of this woeful neglect of your good gifts. We are without excuse. For Christ has defeated all his and our enemies. For those who have been pricked by the sword of your word today, I pray that you would not allow them to leave here and forget. For those who felt nothing, I pray that you would raise the dead. Amen. Hebrews 4, 11 through 13. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience, referring to those who fell in the wilderness. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of the soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and as a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Today God has used his sword, his word, on us. He has used it to cut through and expose the thoughts and the intents of our hearts. And if you have felt its wound, that's a good thing, for God desires to cut away all that is harmful to us. The same spirit that convicts will also cleanse and heal. God knows how needy we are, and he has provided all that we need. So come to him today. Perhaps we could think of our coming to the table each week as our beginning a new week by taking up the shield of faith and putting on the helmet of salvation and taking up the sword of the Spirit before we are sent out the doors to engage in battle. May you win the spiritual battles at your house, in your marriage, with your children, and wherever else the devil is at work to try to take you down. Let us come and eat. Most high and mighty ruler of the universe, by whom we have been established and preserved, we thank and praise you for your favor shown to our fathers and mothers and for your faithfulness that has continued toward their children and their children's children. Indeed, you are a covenant-keeping God, and there is no shadow of turning with you. Especially we thank you for your great love in sending your unchanging Son to be the Savior of the world, and in calling us out of our sins into fellowship with him. And we call upon you to always grant us your Holy Spirit, through whom we may grow continually in thankfulness toward you as also into the likeness of your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. We bless you, for you have blessed us in our callings. Teach us the lessons of contentment to serve you gladly where we are. Even in our failures, we pray that you would confirm, uh, conform us to the image of your Son. Grant to us a fervent love of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Enable our brotherly love to continue so that the world 
might see that we are the disciples of Christ. Bless now this Lord's Day as we rest, fellowship, and feast. Continue your mercies toward us, we pray, that all the world may know that you are our everlasting Savior and mighty Deliverer, and that we might honorably bear your holy name. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. May our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and our God and Father who has loved us and given us an everlasting consolation and good hope by grace comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. Amen.